Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, host of the Team Human podcast, a media theorist who has been recognized with awards named after such giants of the field as Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman, and the author of 20 books, including his latest, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Hello and welcome, Douglas Rushkoff. Hi, good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me. I know you have a very uh, busy week, busy month, um, which is a good thing because you are celebrating the release of your book. Congratulations on finishing and Yay. releasing a book. Thank you. It's it's a moment. This book was not exactly what I expected it to be about. I kind of thought the subject might be about as straightforward as the title. And you know what I typically do? You you. You know how the podcasting thing goes. Somebody tips me off to a book or I see it on at Barnes & Noble. You read the preface. You go, yeah, 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 I'm, in, I'm into that. This is cool. I'd like to speak to that. You know, you find a couple YouTube interviews to make sure the person isn't totally weird when they're actually talking. Uh -huh. And then you book the interview and then I get the, the PDF and I spend some more time with it. Um, the, I'm probably using this word incorrectly, but the book was a little bit more um, impressionistic than what I saw coming. It's not strictly mm. about the escapist fantasies of the tech billionaires. Let's start there. How do you describe what this book is? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the the hook of the book, the, the come hither, yeah, is this meeting I had with five billionaires who are literally building bunkers to escape from the rest of us when the event, the bad thing, the pandemic, the the climate catastrophe, the whatever it is, the the nuclear, you know, bomb or or electromagnetic pulse that wipes out civilization and yields the Walking Dead scenario. But the subtitle of the book, when I caught it, you know, "Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires," what I meant to suggest was that embedded in everything they do and say and build is a fantasy of escape from all of us. So the the climate disaster and the event, the, the, the apocalypse, is really just one kind of escape fantasy. You know, what is the escape fantasy of wanting to upload your brain to a silicon wafer you know what it, what is the the fantasy of wanting to to migrate to the metaverse with mark zuckerberg and and the facebook crew what does peter theo mean when he wants to go from zero to one and and function one order of magnitude above the rest of humanity what is it to go onto a, a to, to seastead and become a fully self-sovereign individual right so i was trying to look at this this Silicon Valley mindset that has been the bane of my existence since Wired Magazine came along in 1993 and took my beautiful psychedelic rave internet away from me and turned it into this stock market derivative nightmare. First of all, the the whole, and I feel like you're the most qualified person I've ever been able to ask this question to, and I've asked a number of people this question, the whole 
transferring your memories and essence onto some virtual thing so that you can live on virtually as like a digital brain. If and when that were ever possible, it seems to me completely impossible that there there has to be some clear door that the you doesn't go through. The best case scenario for that is that a, a thing that is identical to you lives on, but there will still have to be a moment where you die and that thing is born, thereby defeating the most important reason why you were doing it in the first place. You know more about this than I do. Am totally. I wrong? Totally. No, as we know from Star Trek, right? McCoy believed that he wasn't really him anymore. But McCoy suggested that when you beam down to the planet, you take apart who you are and reconstitute from the atoms down there. Is that you or is that like a clone of you? And as we know from Next Generation, Riker got copied. There was two of them, which kind of proved that, oh, my God, there you step on that thing and they kill you. And make another one somewhere else. So I, I, I'm so amazed. And then, then what I realized, though, is that only for people like us who kind of believe in a continuous human consciousness does such a question even matter. You know, these guys, I've got this great argument with uh, Richard Dawkins in the book, and he's the great, you know, genetist, whatever, uh, uh evolutionary biologist who came up with memes and wrote this book, The Selfish Gene. And he believes that consciousness itself is an illusion perpetrated by our DNA on us to make us keep the DNA going. So when Ray Kurzweil wants to uh, uh, you know, uh, upload all the information about him to a computer. If he dies, as long as that computer is doing a version of him, he considers that himself. Right, which to me would not scratch the itch. I've never really thought it in such pure terms. It's a boldly atheistic view of, so much, of right. the universe. It's funny, you don't encounter a lot of people who are techie, and I hope you don't mind me applying that word to you, who also believe in um, in underlying collective, perhaps transcendent human consciousness, but I gather from your book that you you do. Well, I mean, I always liked tech because it was fun, you know, not not because it was the thing. I mean, I felt, and a lot of us did in the early days, that the internet was kind of a dry run for collective consciousness, that here was a nice, safe, wired way for frightened little white Western people to experience what indigenous people have known for thousands of years, right? There's one thing going on. We're all, you know, in this, in this great organism of life living under the stars and uh, what will it take to remind these really uh, highly individualized, isolated, alienated uh, little colonizers? What will it take them to realize, oh no, you're, again, you're running from it, you know, you're running from it, but, but we're all soaking in it. You know, <laughs> this is, this is, so I, there was a lot of us who were in the early days, a very kind of pro fleshy soft and squishy spiritual people who were who were online we'll get to the book but first let's talk about what you just touched on um at the outset of your career as a public figure you were associated with the what has come to be known or was known at the time as the cyberpunk movement um how do you feel about that word how did you feel then how do you feel now 
Sure, whatever word right. helps. I mean, <laughs> it's a tag. Isn't that most tags? I always people get angry. I'm a big hair metal guy, and the hair metal guys hate hair metal. It's like, come on, guys, we had to call it something. What did you want? Exactly. People right. know what it is. Good enough, right? Right, right? I mean, I would probably be more cyberdelic than cyberpunk. Okay. You know, I I was. Uh, I mean, I thought computers were cool when I was in high school, and we had little teletype this was the old days teletype machines with basic and all and the thing i thought was cool about them was that everything on them was shared everyone just had terminals and there was one computer somewhere that everybody was sharing the cycles so all of the software that people built was what we called it shareware and it was shareware for two reasons one it was basically free you shared your software with other people but most of the software was written to help you share computing resources how do we share this hard drive how do we share these pro okay you're going to use the main you're going to use the processor from three o'clock to four o'clock okay good then i'm going to run my program from five to six and software could help kind of coordinate all that so it was the whole project was so kind of communal yeah you're a cyber hippie right and and i was i had that that thread and then in college i got really confused when my most psychedelic friends, the weird acid head Grateful Dead people, were moving out to California to go work for Intel and Apple and Sun Microsystems. And I was like, wait a minute, the kids I knew in high school who did this were kind of pocket protector geeks who, you know, the kids who turn the hall, like walk to the middle of the hall and then suddenly like a 90 degree turn. They don't like curve in the hallway. It was that kind of kids. So why were this, why were the psychedelic people going? So I went out to California and spent time with them and saw that, oh my gosh, there is a, a huge overlap between like the psychedelic people. And I, I was, you know, working with Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna and, and, and Ralph Abraham and, and, you know, the, 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 the old uh, uh, hippie psychedelic people and the rave kids and the computer people. So there'd be people who'd be working at Intel during the day and then at night, you know, scraping the peyote buds off a cactus and tripping their balls off and making fractal diagrams on their computers and then projecting them the next weekend at the Grateful Dead show at the Greek theater. It was like that was computer culture. That was cyber culture. So it seemed like, oh, wow, the West Coast is finally going to wash over us like a wonderful, gorgeous you know, uh, uh, psychedelic, uh, uh, hypertext, fractal fantasy role playing uh, uh, utopia. So it seems fair to say that uh, the reality, this reality that you envisioned for the internet, is somewhat different from where we have actually wound up, at least so far. My, my question is, in your opinion, what changed? What went wrong? A one word answer I gather from your book might be money. Money might suffice, but if you had to use yeah, more than one capitalism, you, okay. If you I had mean, to use more than one word, how would you explain where it's gone wrong in your well, opinion? John Barlow, who was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead and an early cyberdelic hero of a lot of ours, um, wrote something in around 1995, 96 called the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And this was right after the FBI had done these awful raids on hackers called uh, Operation Sun Devil, where they like break into the, you know, middle-class apartment of a 14-year-old kid and his parents, make everyone, you know, lie on the ground and grab the kid and put him in cuffs and, you know, throw him in jail for hacking into an AT&T server just to play. So we were really conscious of the way that government and, and, and Tipper Gore had just done like the, the 
you have to put like explicit warning labels on video games and the yeah, that's computer... how you, that's how you knew what the good ones were, right? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> computer Decency Act. They were all worried about child porn. And John Barlow wrote this thing called the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. It said, like, governments of the world, beware. We don't need you. This is our territory. We, you know, we're going to go off and be independent from you and forge our new human species and blah, blah, blah. And we all were like, yay, let's do it. And what we didn't realize was John Barlow was like, he was Dick Cheney's roommate in college. He was a staunch libertarian, you know, uh, freedom of the individual kind of guy. We didn't know from economics. And what we didn't realize was if you chase government off the internet, you create a free reign for corporations to grow. It's like the way fungus and bacteria balance each other in the body, right? You get rid of all the bacteria, you're going to get a fungal infection. And that's what happened. We got rid of government and we gave free reign to corporations. Wired Magazine comes along and recontextualizes the internet. You know, it used to be covered like on the culture pages. It was Mondo 2000 Magazine and, and it was the weird people. Um, my, uh, Wired came along and said, oh, no, this is a digital economic revolution. This is going to be the salvation of the NASDAQ stock exchange because digital technology can scale infinitely. It could give exponential growth forever. You know, Wired Magazine did a, a cover story called The Long Boom, where they said, thanks to digital technology, the global economy is going to grow exponentially uninterrupted forever. And even Alan Greenspan, who was head of the federal chairman, chairman of the Federal Reserve, said, you know, maybe we're in a new paradigm and maybe this is actually the case. So they were used, they, they turned digital technology around instead of it being what we wanted, which was this tool for the kind of um, uh, expansion of human consciousness, for a tool for people to connect and imagine things in new ways. It became a tool to get people to do things. It really, we turned technology on people. Instead of us kids looking for exploits in computer systems, it's computers looking for exploits in human beings so they can extract value from us and, and really convert our planet, our world into digital tokens. That's what Bitcoin is. We burn the planet as, as a, a way of demonstrating our faith in digital money. To a certain extent, isn't this just kind of the story of everything forever? You're talking about, you know, the internet was the cool new neighborhood that nobody wanted to live in. So the cool kids took it over because it was worthless. And as soon as they made it cool by being there and generated value, then you get gentrification. Yeah. And, and, and the internet essentially has just been gentrified. And I don't know what the cool kids are up to nowadays, but I bet Wired Magazine hasn't done a cover story on it yet because once they do, it was already over a year ago. Yes. Second verse, same as the first, a right. little bit louder, a little bit worse, except because it's digital, it's exponential. Yeah. So it grows differently. It grows at a different rate. We didn't used to get hockey stick growth charts of companies like what uber did to ride sharing it it took you know 18 months or something you know it took walmart 40 years it took british east india company two centuries it took you know <laughs> egypt a millennium you know so when you do it this rapidly you you've got to like burn so much energy and extract so much value um, that the the difference is yes there've always been colonizers and conquistadors but never before have they had the ability to really destroy everything through their activities and the knowledge that they were going to do that 
and a plan B for when that happens. So I feel like it's a little bit, at best, it's the same as before, but way faster and more devastating. And at worst, it is a cynical effort to destroy this whole place um, actively and intentionally in order to bring on a kind of an accelerationist end of days and then reboot the thing according to uh, Elon Musk or, or Peter Thiel's uh, Sim City visions. Now, I heard you say something similar on a podcast and maybe the most recent episode of your podcast, and I've been chewing on that and trying to figure out the extent to which I agree or disagree with what you just said. Does a bright kid, an ambitious kid in Silicon Valley who thinks they may have the next unicorn idea, are they really thinking, yes, and I will destroy a, a decent chunk of the world as we know it. I will wreak uh, unimaginable havoc that Genghis Khan couldn't have dreamt of, but I'm okay with that because I'm thinking of my wife as a business owner and my mm -hmm. wife manufactures clothing. And many people know some of the ethical issues with manufacturing and selling clothing. Many people don't know. Organic cotton is actually really problematic. In case you thought you were a better person for buying organic cotton, we can talk about that. It's a separate conversation. She works with a factory in China. I know the factory owner. He's mm -hmm. a really great guy. It's not a sweatshop. They don't have nets set up for people to stop from killing themselves while they manufacture oh. my child. It's one of the good ones or whatever. But my wife is... It is challenging enough for her to be successful playing by the rules everyone else is playing for, uh, playing by. What chance would she have if she said, and I'm going to do everything, not ethically so it sounds good on the website, really ethically, whereby me with no funding is going to have to spend five times more to make my product than everybody else does, does and then I'll go compete with a $4 shirt from Target. Do you really think, I, I, am, uh, I don't agree that there is a massive amount of cynicism associated with being a tech billionaire and being comfortable with what you've done with your life and what you've done to society, I'm not sure I agree with you in the extent of the cynicism that they enter into the market with. There's a huge spectrum, mm -hmm. right? So the tech billionaires, the Teals and the Musks and the all who are in, you know, regular touch with Steve Bannon and Fox hosts, they're cynical. Yeah. The ones who are willing to enlist Gamergate in a in a you know accelerationist neo right destruction of society, um, they're cynical. There's there's kids who have no idea what they're doing. They're freshmen in college who come up with a good idea, and before they've taken economics or history or philosophy or ethics, they're plucked by the likes of a Peter Thiel and say, it's a great idea, kid. This is great. Here's a zillion dollars. Now let's pivot this thing just a little bit over towards uh, a little bit more surveillance capitalism, or let's do it like this. Or if you now that you took this $100 million in order to get a thousand X growth, you're going to have to do this, that, and the other. And the kid, the child, these kids, I mean, they're, 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 the myelin sheaths haven't developed around their frontal lobes, right? They still don't have impulse control. They're not fully formed. They transfer parental authority onto a venture capitalist that they really should be going to a, a, a well-meaning professor or rabbi or somebody, you know, somebody who's worthy of that uh, 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 transference rather than one of these guys. And they they fall into their into their uh, into their mindset. It takes some time. But then you got to ask, there's people in the middle who are the ones I'm most interested in. So I just read this piece by Cory Doctorow about Epson printers. And he said, there's this printer model that bricks itself after a certain number of pages. It just stops. It's in the software. It will stop and lock you out. It's done. 
And he did all these investigations and the company says, well, we do that because there's a little sponge inside, you know, a nice 12 cent part, a teeny little sponge that eventually after enough use, it soaks up all the extra ink it can. And then there's a risk that some ink could drop onto the surface on which the printer is sitting. So we brick the printer. Is the sponge replaced? No, you're not allowed to. You can't just take out the sponge and put in a new one. Right. So there's someone at the company who says it's worth it to me. To, for the money to make the people have to buy another printer, send more African kids into the mines to get the rare earth metals to make this thing, take the used printer and throw it onto a toxic waste dump in Brazil where other kids are going to be picking at it for uh, any kind of reusable, new, renewable part. And yes, I am accelerating the rate at which the planet will become unlivable, but I believe I am making enough additional money by doing this that I will be able to outrun the thing. So on some level, they're making a calculation. Yes, it's bad, but if I make enough money, just enough money, then I can leave this place and stop doing that awful stuff and keep my kids from ever looking on the laptops that I'm building, you know, have, send them to Rudolf Steiner schools and have them uh, give them an organic goat share up in, you know, Monterey somewhere. You uh, make the case, and I think a very compelling case, that we are all, most of us, probably everybody listening to this, uh, complicit in this to some extent or another. Did you coin the the concept of the dumbwaiter effect? Did you name that? Yeah, but I didn't name the dumbwaiter. No, but, I don't. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I would that have to call Tom bullshit. Jefferson. I didn't know but, that Thomas Jefferson made the dumbwaiter. Yeah. I mean, the dumbwaiter, it was a great thing. I mean... I remember being taught, I remember the day in middle school, what was her name? Gosh, this this great Irish middle school social studies teacher taught us about the dumbwaiter and how Thomas Jefferson, who felt really terrible about having all these enslaved people in his employ, came up with this idea for like, it's a little hand crank kind of pulley elevator so that the 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 servants, we'll call them the, the, in, the indentured servants, um, put the food in the 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 bottom and then and then they crank it up and then you open the doors at the at the second floor where the dining room is and automatically like from a Star Trek replicator there's your dinner you know and oh didn't it save all that work for those poor enslaved people but if you look at Monticello and the designs of it those enslaved people were walking through corridors like half a mile and then up like four flights of stairs from the basement to the floor right below where the dining room is. Then they put it in the dumbwaiter and it goes up one one little level. So it wasn't there to to save labor for the enslaved people. It was there to spare Thomas Jefferson and his guests having to witness the labor to witness the huffing and puffing enslaved person coming up the stairs. So it it for me, it was a great model for how we use technology not to replace human labor, but to camouflage human labor. So when you look at, you know, Amazon says they have, oh, we've got robots that are going to make your t-shirts for you. And it's great. You just type in your measurements and what you want, and it's going to happen. And then it's just going to deliver. It's like There's a lot of who got the cotton, even the organic cotton, who got that cotton out of the ground? Where was it shipped from? Who got the rare earth metals for the machine and the robot and the this that made it? Who's bringing it to your house? Who is it that you 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 could look in your Amazon doorbell in the video and you'll see there was a person who brought it from the unair conditioned truck to your to your house. So it 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 seems magical. It seems you know like it's just some Oculus Rift thing, but but it's not. So you postulate, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, that we are. Uh 
cocooning ourselves from the dire reality of how a lot of goods and servers get delivered uh, to us. And, and we're increasingly cocooning ourselves from that. And uh, those of us who shuttered ourselves in our homes during coronavirus, that was sort of a sneak preview of more and more yeah. of what the future of society is likely to look like. And I, and I agree with you there. I think a lot of us shuttered ourselves in our homes and found out we kind of really like it there. Um, right. And we and we we idolize and iconize people whose main efforts, if we looked at them critically, we'd realize are uh, uh, cocooning visions, whether it's Jeff Bezos and the ultimate demonstration of white flight, you know, going on Blue Origin and, and using his money to, to to get up there or Peter Thiel going in and and his vision of a, a these, these uh, uh, you know, aquapreneurial uh, seasteading communities out on the ocean, you know, that they're all uh, visions of isolation. Even Mark Zuckerberg to go up into the metaverse as a being with nothing from the waist down to run around up there. I mean, that's great if you really do believe the world is moving towards some kind of a ready player one nightmare of stacked trailer homes where the only place we get a break is by putting on the goggles or the or the suits, the the the, the tactile suits and uh, getting to live a little better life that way. Yeah, I'm not a science fiction person, I don't think especially any more than the average person, but I did watch that with my kids and uh, Ready Player One, and that to me just stands out as the most compelling vision of a plausible near future that I can that I can imagine. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, because it feels a little bit like the present. You know, right. it's like, ugh, the world sucks. I could put on MSNBC or Fox or something and see what's really happening, or I could just tune into Netflix or Amazon or get my Oculus Rift and the the entertainments are getting higher res, you know? Right. Whereas reality is not to exaggerate, but for, for many people, perhaps, I mean, I don't know how, how is the, the, media? it's not how, actually that bad. That's funny. I've got how's the cousins, median, how's the my, median human being doing? They're doing better than they used to. Right. Some are and certain costs. Yeah. I mean, the, the ways in which we're doing better usually invo involve one form or the other of steroids, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, economic technological um, um, steroids to kind of kick another, get another chorus out of this thing before, but something, something it, before that's, it collapses. That's not sustainable. Right. They're not, they're not sustainable. But that said, you know, I have relatives who now refuse to see us in New York or Washington, D.C. because they've watched Fox News and they think New York and D.C. are too dangerous to visit. They believe they will be killed in the streets. And I guess a lot of, you know, blue state people are afraid to go to Texas or Montana because they think they'll be killed. I don't know. I don't fear that. But the, if it's if if the picture on television, if they're telling us don't go outside. It's too dangerous. They make more money doing that. You know, they make they certainly do because uh, then it's safer to watch to watch their entertainments than to just go out. But the more you can just go outside, meet other people, spend time, the more you you play cards, have sex and talk and do stuff. That's actually I mean, you're an enemy of the market when you do that because you're not <laughs> you're not contributing to GDP. Are you an Amazon Prime member? I am. And I felt really guilty about it mm -hmm. right up until around COVID happened. Right. And then I'm like, you know, well, maybe that's not so bad. And it's like, oh, I've got that dormant Fresh Direct account I used like twice. It's like, oh, thank God I still have that because it gave me like I was able to get a time slot more easily than people who joined. They gave like uh, uh, 
some kind of a time slot advantage to people who are long-term members. And it was like, Ooh, that's good. You know, and my neighbor got an Oculus Rift invited me over and we're like, Oh, actually gave me a migraine. I couldn't really use it. But you know, a lot of the stuff I understood why, Ooh, you know, this is, and I felt terrible about it. You know, the, the, I didn't know whether, I mean, in my case, it wasn't so bad, but I saw a lot of people going out to the Hamptons, finally justifying kind of a, a, a upper class version of homeschooling. And they had little tutors and pods for their kids. And it was like, here's finally our excuse to extract ourselves from the public school system and all this civic good and just take care of number one, because, well, you know. We're under siege. Okay, but these people that you saw doing that, haven't they rejoined society? It, what, it, what they experienced in the Hamptons was not so seductive that they chose to to stay there. Um, Actually, a lot of them have. I see. Um, they've stayed there. A lot of people have moved to Europe and they do their virtual whatever from the, the, the beaches of Portugal. Um, no, the, many of the wealthy are not, are not coming back. And many of the wealthy have seen... COVID as the dry run for the future, whether it's the civil war they're all fearing or, you know, and, and they, they are, you know, I mean, to, to the, the initial point of the book, the, the, there are real billionaires who are prepping for the, an actual event. Let's talk about that. So the origin story of this book involves you getting paid some uh, handsome sum of money to go and answer some questions, give a little talk for you think it's going to be a small number of people. It's a very small number of people. It's a small number of uh, billionaires who have some questions about surviving this. It's taken for granted this. Uh, the moment will come when society will melt down and they're going to have to um, look out for for number one, as you say. First of all, the setting you depict sounds like something out of a Marvel movie. I, I typically find that when you like meet celebrities or whatever, they really are just kind of people and there's this huge facade around them yeah. and, 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 and real life rarely lives up to the Hollywood fantasy. The, your journey there and the place that you arrive at sounds like something Tony Stark would own. How far off from Iron Man was it? Oh, it was far off in that this is a, a, a facility that anyone with, you know, I think like uh, the lowest rate for 6,500 a night, you can go to this place. Mm. I mean, so it's, that's, I think that's reasonable for some, some people here, 6,500, maybe not my listeners, <laughs> yours, but that's like, oh, right. You know, like a motel seven instead of a motel six. You know, the, so you can go there and it's just, it was just a really nice, nice, nice resort out in the middle of nowhere. But so for me, it was out in the middle of nowhere. It's a three hour car drive from the airport, the closest airport that I landed in for them. There's a municipal airstrip there that they go to in these little planes. And then, you know, and, and then we think, you know, because how little we know about how these people live. Oh, so you need your own airplane to go there. No, you don't. There are these like websites. It's like Uber, like net jets and these things. And people pay not millions. It's like a few thousand, you know, $10,000 for a plane trip or something. That's nothing, right? To, to people who are that rich. It's, so you don't have to own a $100 million plane. You you get a seat on a little thing and you go there and, and they're there. And it's like a hotel, except everyone gets their own little like uh, 
cottage. I don't know what you called them. It was sort of stone-like West Coasty cottages that each had like hot tubs or jacuzzis, you know, outside, and you could see mountains and stuff. But but I've seen things really close to it. I've been to hotels that have suites not that far, you know, cabanas at the ocean or what. So it's not that crazy and it's not that crazy you know i've done talks in super deluxe places before not quite this deluxe and they don't fly me out business class usually with warm nuts which i'm still have you ever had warm nuts have you ever been on a plane where they gave you warm nuts that's a loaded question but no you're very excited about these nuts <laughs> well, I, yeah, I it changed it changed my whole experience of nuts uh-huh. and i don't i don't even mean in some double entendre way no i like, get it i'll take take some take some of those diamond blue diamond smokehouse almond put them in a little cup, put them in the microwave and just heat them for 30 seconds and then eat them. It's like a different, they're actually really good. Okay. So that was my my sense memory of that trip. Right, because the chestnuts roasting on an open fire, in my experience, always smell better than the reality is. On the other hand, a decent slice of warmed pecan pie, now we're talking. So Right. right. So warm nuts is a, is a special thing. But so in other words, you know what I mean? So to, to us, these things seem like warm nuts to me was like, Wow. Uh, but to to the wealthy, I don't think these are, it's not that incredible. What was incredible was, you know, I'm in the green room waiting to go on, waiting for the tech guy to come in to mic me up, you know, so I'll go out and do my, you know, leftist, you know, a, a stealth leftist talk. What I try to do is to scare the billionaires, the billionaire investors into realizing that hockey stick returns are not sustainable. So they want to start to explore circular economic things and how you can make a lot of money doing that. And what is a worker owned business and how you can still profit off, off accelerating the flow of money rather than just extracting money off the table and destroying your marketplace and having to move on. You know, so I've got really good sort of anarcho syndicalist. Uh, uh, philosophy and and really good ways of lacing a what seems like a pro business talk with uh, what I would consider economically progressive ideas, but they didn't mic me up or anything. They just brought them in. They brought these five guys in the room to pepper me with all these questions, and I honestly thought I was being punked. I thought, oh, some person is doing like a. Like they're gonna tease me. They're gonna like make it like they're making a secret documentary of this. How can we expose this sort of, you know, Noam Chomsky wannabe right. as a sold-out capitalist, you know, or something? I thought <laughs> something terrible. Right. Was, was it Gravitas? What were the people that were going around uh secretly filming? Right. Yeah. Those kind of things. Right. I was sure it was I was sure it was happening. And then when they started by saying Bitcoin or Ethereum, that was the whole opening. Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's like, do you want to hear my talk? No. Bitcoin or Ethereum. Like what? What do you mean? Like which do you bet on? What? Do you, and they did that or virtual reality, augmented reality. They were just, and then finally it was you know Alaska, New Zealand, and it got to this. And and I was frank with them. I was like, look, I'm a friggin', I'm a Marxist media theorist. I am not an expert in bunkers, but it sounds to me like these vertical hydroponic gardens you want to build in a hydro in a in a hermetically sealed bunker. Can't they get? mold or something and where are you going to switch out the topsoil and and, uh, germs they travel and what about people invading and they were like they had excuses for each thing oh well you know we've got this or we've got and then they said oh we've got you know a dozen navy seals are going to come i've got them pre-contracted to fly out at the first sign of trouble you know former navy seals i'm like yeah well why do you think the navy seals are going to take care of you once civilization's over? Then what do you mean? You know, I've contracted them. So yeah, but your money's worthless. Civilization's over. Why are they going to let you still be boss of this thing? 
And then they they all start panicking, like, well, we could uh, I'm going to be the only one who has the combination to the safe or uh, we could have everyone's going to be implanted with something, you know, that that function essentially like a shock collar that that they, they they'll have implants in order to maintain, you know, their 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 everyone's on a blockchain or something. They could be punished. And I'm just like, you guys are nuts since they're well, Rushkoff, what would you do? And I'm like, if you want these guys to take care of you in the apocalypse, I would start being really nice to them today. And I said, um, and this you'd appreciate as a comic um, or sometimes comic. I said, uh, the way to make sure your head of security doesn't shoot you between the eyes in the apocalypse is pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today. Right. See, this even I know. I read an article about this a couple of years ago. It's been spinning around in my head ever since about people during the pandemic buying up plots of land, buying citizenship in New Zealand seemed to be the preferred destination for that particular set. And they even those guys knew you already have to have a house as, as well set up as you are for your family. You need to be that well set up or nearly so for the pilot and his family, because otherwise people will make all sorts of assurances. Now, when the shit goes down, what's why is this pilot going to ditch his family? So even, boy, even I knew the answer to that. Have you gotten any feedback from these these five guys or any of their intermediaries since talking about this anonymously, of course, in your book? Yeah. Um, one of them emailed back something like, nice. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. sarcastically. Sure, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I got that. <laughs> Fuck you. You know, we gave you, we gave you, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars. And this is the way you think us, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um get an NDA, but, dude. But the 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 only bad thing that happened was not from the article when I published it, but when news of the book came out, my speaking agent said two two of your talks have canceled. <laughs> I had one talk. I was supposed to go out to Arizona to speak to a, a hedge fund, but the, the hedge fund was having their biggest clients come and they titled the thing something like infinite growth. You know? <laughs> it's like, right. <laughs> I think the idea that someone's coming in and saying, no matter how much money you save, you're not going to be able to to escape the apocalypse of your own making. Um, I think I saw the message that they wanted to hear. So they, they can, some other one canceled too, but whatever. Uh, let's go through the the subtitle word for word. So it's uh, survival of the richest escape fantasies of the tech billionaires. And each one of those is loaded with a, a whole bunch of stuff. So escape, we've sort of gone over from what? Now, I know you've only encountered a small sample size of uh, tech, tech billionaires, billionaires <laughs> but like... How many of them to what degree? Because like I've often thought, I remember reading about people just getting home security systems uh, 10 years ago. And if you literally know that you have more money than you would ever care to spend, you you would start saying, well, I can't decide between the two colors of these cars. I'll just get both. You know, I don't think somebody is going to storm my house and murder all of us, but it would be unpleasant if it did. I've got the million dollars to fortify my townhouse in New York, so why the hell not? If I were one of these guys, I might well be preparing for societal meltdown just in case. So my question is, the people that you spoke to I sense it's more of a, uh, they are convinced this is a when, not if situation. Yeah, but the ones I actually spoke to there, and not like my communications I may have had with like Teal and other kinds of tech bros. Yeah. These guys were money people. 
right? And they use this language. I, re- I should find what it is. They, they, interestingly enough, I thought that money people talk about money in terms of like gains and growth and things, but the word they kept using about money was risk. They do, everything is about certain levels of risk and how much risk they're willing to take and, un, and, and, and hedge, the hedge fund, the idea of a hedge is a hedge against certain kinds of risk. You know, so they hedge against the market. It's all this, all this about risk management. So when I was talking to them in, in, in the after, in the pillow talk afterglow of the main thing, um, they were saying that, um, their one of their like actuarial risk assessment people had said that there was a 20% chance of a you know a civilization ending catastrophe in their lifetimes so this is why they were taking 20% of their money and investing it in that possibility so to them it was really much less of that kind of Musk tech bro crazy, I want to go to Mars or Stuart Brand, you know, we shall be as gods and rise above mere mortals and and rule the people or or Zuckerberg imagining himself Augustus Caesar, you know, and I'm thankful it's not Caligula Caesar, but still it's not a nice guy, Roman emperor. He cuts his hair to be like him and he has statues of him in his, I mean, it's this is not a normal person. So it's not that tech bro thing. It is a kind of a calculated risk, which is why it was so strange for them to hear me saying, none of this actually works. You know, one of them showed me this plans, these pictures, and does that sound bad for you? I didn't I hear wait till it goes. Oh, sorry. We have volunteer fire department here that uses this noise. He showed me the plans for this. His underground bunker was all these like, uh, uh, shipping containers that are kind of connected together under the ground. And he had this, one of them was going to be filled with natural light and have a heated swimming pool in it. And I was like, you know, there's a rich guy in my town who's got a heated swimming pool and there are trucks in front of his house all the time, bringing out replacement filter, replacement pump, replacement heaters. Like, it's like, it's, it's constant. Where are you going to get your replacement parts? How is that? How is that going to work? And he opens up this little pad. He's like, replacement parts. He's brought shots down. Replacement parts. Going to need another shipping (laughs) container for those. Right. Right. If you're not thinking, it's like, at least Jeff Bezos has a surface yacht for his yacht. He understands, you know, that, well, because he's a logistics guy, right? Jeff Bezos is basically the UPS of the 21st century. He understands you got to, what's my, what's the, my supply line from my seasteading community and the unidentified island south of Wales, you know, to my boat, to my helicopter, to my fuel supply, where's my oil rig, you know, and how do I keep all those people in dormitories and, and sexually satisfied so they don't revolt? You know, he's actually thinking the the master plan. So the book is about the escapist fantasies of the tech billionaires. Mm-hmm. You sort of already touched on one uh, sense of the word fantasy as you intended, that it, it might well be in a fantasy to think yeah. that they can get away from us and survive in, in, in any way, shape, or form that somebody would prefer to death. Um, but you also make the case in the book that it is... Uh, a fantasy that appeals to a lot of tech billionaire, tech bro types to uh, imagine themselves navigating the challenge of the meltdown of society. That in and of itself is, it's not just a fantasy that it's going to work. It's a fantasy that they sort of embrace, at least in theoretical terms. Yeah. And, and 
I mean, to be fair, a lot of them think they can save the whole world. You know, you, they they go to, you know, Burning Man or South America and they do some ayahuasca with an expensive shaman and they believe that the that the earth, the climate speaks to them and goes, Joe, tech bro, dude, I'm I'm the mother earth and I'm in trouble and I need your help and you can save me. And, you know, 15 minutes into their transformation, they decide that not only are, you know, do they care about the climate, but they're going to lead the climate revolution. And they have a software stack where, you know, they, they imagine like sim civilization or, or some kind of, you know, Roblox solution. And they, they, and I've spoken, these are the ones I've spoken to more because they're, they're more accessible, you know, and they're, they lead to things like, um, um, you know, the the World Economic Forum has the Great Reset, which is this plan that we put the whole global economy and all of our goods and services and all people on the blockchain. And this is going to lead to some kind of a conscious capitalism where all stakeholders matter. As long as we can make a whole lot of money off this, as long as this can keep the global economy chugging, you know, the Green New Deal is beautiful. We're going to replace every car with this and every, every you know, uh, uh, every furnace with solar panels and look at the market and the way that grows. So they've created this vision where technology can just through mega solutions, through these giant moonshots, where their technological idea can save the world. So they love it, but they then want to accelerate. They want to hasten the apocalypse so that people realize, oh, we've got to turn to you, oh, great tech bro God, to, you know, to, to, to remake the environment on this dead planet. You know, it's like they're going to terraform Earth. And I'm like, dude, Earth is already terraformed, right? But in order to terraform Earth the way they want, you've got to clear cut the whole planet. So that's why the one they're doing now, they've got this thing called Neom in Saudi Arabia, a multi-zillion dollar project to build this city. It's kind of like Dubai, except it's a self-contained biosphere city with like a billion dollars for entertainment, a billion dollars for economics, a billion dollars for this. And they really think that they are kind of spawning. It's like this this fractal computer-generated universe that they want to build. And they want to build it because that's another escape fantasy. Here you are with all your Freudian problems, your memories of what your mom did to you or didn't do for you, the girlfriends that you've screwed over, the people that you've fucked over with your technologies and your horrible surveillance plans and all the problems and wet, horrible, sticky, scariness of nature and women and stuff and indigenous people. And we can just clear cut that and pave over it with a beautiful, clean, computerized stack of hydroponic, renewable, earth-friendly things. And I have been spoken to directly by the spirit of the planet on ayahuasca to do this. Now I gather and I've met those guys. Those I, are real. They are real. Okay, I gather you don't accept their belief and their message uh wholeheartedly, but I do no. but I do wonder can you uh you know what what's that famous thing nobody's battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh it has you obviously don't buy what they're 
not selling, but, but well, they are kind of selling it. What you don't buy what they believe has interacting with these people. Like, I, I do think that tech billionaires maybe don't know more than I know about what's going on in a larger sense in the world and what's around the corner tomorrow. But it certainly seems like if anybody could, they could. They can't all be um, genius slash dummies. There must just be no, some they straight learn, they, they know less than we do. I so, mean, as then, we, let me just ask, let yeah. me put it to you this way. Having had contact with these people and then blowing your mind with what they're thinking and what they're planning, has it changed at all the way that the attitudes towards the way forward for humanity that you brought to the table upon first contact with them? Um, it's given me confidence, okay. finally, mm -hmm. that there is no uh, moonshot $100 million X prize solution to humanity that that Humanity is not a problem to be solved with technology, but technology is a problem to be solved by humanity. And that that these sort of more local moment-to-moment uh, -moment solutions matter. I guess the, the the real reckoning for me was not the tech bros, but was when um, Steve Bannon's people called and wanted me on his podcast, War Room Pandemic. Tell me everything. And so he was seeing some of my critique of the techno-solutionist, sort of neoliberal techno-solutionist orthodoxy and going, he's one of us. He gets it, right? These guys have to be stopped. Um, but the difference between me and Bannon and the guys that Bannon hates is they are all accelerationists. They all want to bring about the conflict, bring about the end so that we can get to reformatting the hard drive. So the vision that they have of the future Bannon and them is one that that we would all get on board if we all had the right you know racial makeup. Um, it's 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 not bad. It's local people connected with each other. You know, putting their communities first and sharing stuff and working together and rolling up their sleeves and all that. It's it's all good. The only problem is their theory of change is really perverse. So my theory of change is that the ends never justify the means. You don't kill people now for the good thing you imagine in the future. You know, there you you got to start doing it now. Your process is the only real way you have of testing the the truth and veracity of what you want to do. So if if Steve Bannon, like Peter Thiel and their friends, you know, want to enlist a bunch of Gamergate and QAnon people to bring down the government and use what they know are lies to get those people activated by any means necessary, because bringing down the neoliberal pederast elite is more important than anything. Um, then we're all going to die. It doesn't work like that. You know, the the way uh, the way to make change is slowly and incrementally. And that's what tech bros don't quite get because they want hockey stick returns on their company. So they've got to scale instantaneously. The only thing that scales instantaneously in nature is cancer and it kills its host. So we don't want that. So what I'm looking for is what are slow local solutions that can be replicated and modeled by others rather than these kind of totalitarian um you know uh, uh, uh colonization of of human space. So 
if I'm if I gather correctly, your ultimate message beyond just the book, but I'm I'm thinking more of your your website and your podcast, Team Human, is that humankind needs to put aside our differences. Uh, we not only can but must band together. Is that about right? What what sure. must what must be done? And are there any encouraging signs that it will be? Well, I mean, I see my book as very encouraging, even though people think it's like a sad book, because it's so funny that if you gain the ability to laugh at Teal and Musk and these billionaires and realize, oh, my God, they are so funny. They're afraid that an AI is going to see what they've done on Twitter and then hurt them in the future when the AIs take over. I mean, that's that's. How silly they are. And now people, some listeners are going, oh my, what are the AIs? Are they going to do that? Um, <laughs> it's silly. I, de- I deleted it's, all my old tweets. It's fine. I'll be oh, fine. Oh, good. Yeah, so yeah. you'll be fine. You'll be fine. But they're going to see which ones you deleted. It's going to, as they know. Son of a they're bitch. They're going to infer. Um, but, but if we see how silly they are, we can stop emulating these guys and stop worrying about the things they're worrying about and get on with the business of, of life. But yeah, Team Human is saying not even that we all have to get along, um, but that being human is a team sport. You know, what What? What makes evolution work is not the survival of the fittest individual. That's not what Darwin was saying. What Darwin was writing about was the way that, that different species collaborated and cooperated in order to ensure mutual survival. The story we're being told, the neoliberal or libertarian story of evolution is not scientifically or economically accurate. Yeah, the book is Trees- called, the book's called Origin of the Species, not Origin of the Guy. Right. Of the species. Right. And trees, they don't try to crowd each other out for nutrients from the sun. They share nutrients under the soil through a network of mycelia that take a service fee for moving stuff back and forth. It's like a giant ecology of 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 sharing of resources. What allowed human beings to move from prey to predator was that we learned to work together. We developed language. We collaborated with each other. So this whole idea of moving to what economists would call a Gini number of one, of getting all the poker chips off the table and being the only person with wealth, you know, to win the game is the booby prize. What we want to do is learn to keep the game going. You know, games you win are great for childhood. I win, I win, right? The game is over and I can go home. Well, what if you want to keep the game going? You know, that's what James Carse wrote a great book, Finite and Infinite Games. That's when you're moved to uh, the, let's say the middle age or even the adolescence of a civilization, it's not about winning anymore. It's about sustaining. So, how do we get there? Because I agree with you in in theory, but I, I, there's another guest I had on the show recently who was saying that, and this is not surprising, this will not surprise you at all, that people always sort of in all places trust their neighbors, like their neighbors, believe they can depend on their neighbors, but think that they, they think their neighbors are great, but they think that people are bad and more often than not getting worse. So there's this idea of like, yeah, I don't actually experience in my life the uh, degradation of society, but I am convinced that it is happening and we might already be past the point of no return. So how do 7 billion or 330 million individuals come to realize that the emperor, be it Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Steve Bannon, Fox News, CNN has no clothes. Well, first I would say, you know, however much we may believe we have happened upon the great truth, 
it's hubristic of us to say, how are we going to get everyone to realize this? I think we're way better off just walking the walk ourselves and let the example that 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 we live um, affect our neighbors and their neighbors and so on and so on. I mean, for me, all right, for me, it's a non-technological thing. For me, it's you look at the escape fantasies of the tech billionaires, right? And they're all based on this idea, and you can trace it to capitalism. You could trace it to empirical science of of Francis Bacon, who wanted to hold nature down and submit her to our will. They're all of them are based in this idea that when things get bad, you move on to the next place. You colonize the next territory. And I remember even as a kid, my dad used to tell me, you know, that they were immigrants from the pogroms in Russia. They escaped, right? They escaped. They got to the tenements of the Lower East Side. And he said, these were bad neighborhoods. We tried to stick together, but the apartment was cold. Six of us slept in a bed. We took, you know, baths in a bucket in the you know, the whole thing. And he's like, but I worked hard. I went to night school. I earned money so I could get out of there and raise you somewhere better. And I remember that was Queens then. And Queens was great. Queens. They, they, there was a, a barbecue pit at the end of the block. You'd, everyone would bring their weenies. All the kids on Friday night, we'd all bring our weenies down there. And one of the neighbors would cook them. It was this communal affair. It was just not just what I understood. Then my dad made more money. And we moved to Larchmont in Westchester. There's no barbecue at the end of the block in Westchester. Every house has its own barbecue. And all of a sudden, the barbecue was an isolated nuclear family Freudian nightmare, right? We weren't barbecuing with the Joneses anymore. Now we're barbecuing against the Joneses, right? They got Porterhouse. We got filet mignon. They get Kobe. We get lobster. It's like, what's what what are they what are they cooking over there? Is there, is there something better? All right, invite them over and show them what we got. Um, but it was then then what is it? Um so. The solution is not to get out. What happens when your whole world is turning into a bad neighborhood? What do you do? You either wish for something to happen that justifies you get to go to an island and stay out of that bad neighborhood for the rest of your life and arm yourself with Navy SEALs and have a heated pool and hydroponic gardens, or you decide to make the world a better neighborhood. You you turn around, you stop running. And I think that's where we're at. We reached the end where colonization is over. What we're looking at now is either do we pre-colonize a virtual world so that we can expand further or do we stop colonizing? Do we stop going and do we do we turn around and making the world a better place? I, I really think it's fine to podcast and write books and try to spread the word and whatever. But, you know, I, I think the most honest thing for me to do would be to hang it up to say, I've said what I came here to say. I've had more than enough screen time that any human being should expect to have. I mean, and it's less than Jennifer Aniston, but more than most people. Um, and just do puppet shows for my neighbors and teach kids and and live my life. I didn't see puppet shows coming. That is, uh, uh, that's a far more charming answer <laughs> than I was expecting. I'll put it that way, but I, 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 I suspect... I suspect you're 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 just about right. I don't know if that way is going to work, but it probably is the only shot that we've I think it's the only shot that we've yeah. got. Well, thank you for your time and your insight. Douglas Douglas Rushkoff, you have the Team Human Podcast. The book we have been discussing is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Thank you. 
Thank you. It's my goal to sell 10 times more books than I do podcasts. Hockey stick growth. (laughs) 